Welcome to the A to Z of sex with me, Dr. Lori Beth. I'm an intimacy coach and psychologist. I created this show to explore the erotic alphabet, to help you learn more about desire and expressing your desires, discover ways to spice up your relationship and create that sizzling relationship you've always wanted. I do this through solid science, real life stories, and interviews with an exciting variety of sex experts. Listen in weekly as I share key strategies to help you create your ideal sexual life. Make sure you join us to access even more sexual strategies on my blog, A to Z of Sex. Access our monthly newsletter with subscriber-only offers at www.atozofsex.com. That's A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the A to Z of Sex. I'm Dr. Lori Beth, and I'm your host. We're working our way through the erotic alphabet one letter at a time. Just a reminder, this podcast deals with adult content, so if you don't have total privacy, you might want to put on your headphones. Today, the letter is P, and P is for porn. Pornography is a divisive topic these days. There's been a lot of panic around what young people are accessing on the internet and whether they're getting most of their sexual education from porn. There's also been lots of controversy around the idea of sex and porn addictions. In some areas, pornography has been demonized to the point that there's significant censorship, legislation to control what adults can see and possess with very stiff penalties. Joining me today is Dr. David Lay. Dr. Lay is a clinical psychologist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who is a board-certified sex therapist and writer. He's a favorite of the media, commenting on sexuality issues in sources ranging from CNN to Hustler Magazine. His newest book is Ethical Porn for Dicks, A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing Pleasure. It's good to have you here, Dr. Lay. Thanks for having me. So let's start out with the question that I get asked most often, which is, can you be addicted to sex and to pornography? Uh, you know, the idea of addiction um, at this point, clinically and scientifically, is really an outdated concept. Um, you know, if you remember back in the day, uh, the word moron actually used to have a, a specific clinical yep. meaning. Um, and uh, the medical field had to stop using that word because society grabbed onto it and started using it to, you know, to, to describe anybody that was dumb. Um, the word addiction now really just means anybody who does something more than somebody else likes. Um, Kinsey said it best that the definition of a nymphomaniac, a sex addict in today's world, um, is anybody who has more sex than the therapist. So if you're watching more porn or having more sex than your therapist, they're going to diagnose you as addicted. Um, if you want more sex than your wife or your husband does, they're going to tell you that you're addicted. If you watch porn and your wife or husband think that you shouldn't watch porn, they're going to tell you that you're addicted. What, what the issue of a porn addiction has really become is a label that is attached to people's shame and their fear about their pornography use. Now, there are people who use porn and get in trouble for it. Um, in my book, I talk a lot about it, and I, and I work with, with those folks. Rarely is porn the actual issue. In almost every case that I see, Pornography is a symptom of other problems. And we can talk about what those problems are. 
But the, the real danger of the porn addiction label is that it, it distracts us. It points the problem and it points at pornography as the problem when really it's the people who have problems and have not negotiated pornography or sexuality within themselves or within their relationships. I mean, so for me, what comes to mind is, is the idea of when people have obsessive thoughts, their obsessive thoughts are, are to try and manage anxiety about something else. They don't actually, the content of the thought is almost irrelevant. And it sounds like that's what we're talking about is this is porn is being used to do something, but that's yeah, not actually the problem. Yeah, I really appreciate the way you said that. You know, I, one of the other things that people say is they describe, you know, pornography as compulsive. Um, well, you know, as a, as, a, as a psychologist, I have to say, now, wait a minute, you know, it, it, we can't actually diagnose something as compulsive when it is inherently reinforcing itself. Yeah. Um, sex, food um, can't be compulsive because there are things that already feel good. There's lots of reasons why people would do that behavior repetitively. Again, you know, when, when, when we use that word compulsive or obsessive, um, there is something else going on. Now, I've seen folks who have obsessive compulsive disorder and using pornography becomes an aspect of that. I've also seen recently um, a real increase in uh, young men with autism who are using lots of pornography because the pornography becomes an aspect of the obsessive behaviors obsessive and repetitive behaviors that are symptomatic of that condition. The really sad thing is I've seen cases here in the United States where men with autism were diagnosed as being porn addicted and sent to porn addiction treatment, which there really isn't any effective treatment in that way under that, instead of treating the autism. That's criminal in my opinion. And, and I imagine quite damaging. I mean, uh, autistic folk as a rule don't usually do very well in group settings. <laughs> you know, and and most of the porn addiction that treat treatments that I've seen are kind of group based, and there's a lot of twelve stepping, and that's not that's the last place I'd want to send somebody who was who was um, autistic or who had Asperger's because as a rule they don't deal well with that sort of situation. Absolutely, and you know the really sad thing is that the the whole yeah, the porn and the sex addiction industry, you know, they came from a good place. I mean, I really do. I really do think these are mostly good people who in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis, people were really afraid of sexuality and especially homosexuality and male homosexuality uh, to a T. Um, and unfortunately, sex therapists and mental health therapists have um, uh, weren't much help back in the day and dealing with those people's fears and concerns about how to control their sexuality. So they went to drug and alcohol counselors who said, yeah, look, we can just treat sex like it's a craving for drug and alcohol. And they put them in 12-step groups. And, and unfortunately, most porn and sex addiction treatment is based on 12-step um, uh, group model of services. Well, 12-step is helpful for some people, um, about 12% of people, but it may be damaging and actually dangerous for as, as much as 40 to 50% of people that are referred into 12-step treatment, and, and that's unfortunate. The really, really scary thing is that people are paying for sex and uh, porn addiction treatment. In some cases, they're paying $1,000 a day to be in these residential treatment programs. Insurance won't pay for it because it's not a real diagnosis. Insurance only pays for treatment for real conditions. Um, and there is no legitimate evidence that any of this treatment works. There's, you know, at, after 40 years of sex addiction treatment being around, after 40 years of us being told 
porn is like crack cocaine. Um, and instead, there is no published evidence that these treatments actually work. And in fact, there's increasing amounts of evidence that these treatments actually probably hurt people. And, and do you think that the damage comes about raising shame levels, which are already present? Um, and, 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 and then, I mean, shame is such a difficult emotion in relation to sexuality and, and causes so much disorder. Yeah, and, and very well said. I mean, again, I, I, it, it's unfortunate because the sex addiction therapists really intend to reduce shame. Um, but what has been demonstrated, and there's this uh, marvelous researcher named Josh Grubbs, who's a psychologist at, at Bowling Green University in Ohio, and he's done some really remarkable uh, publications and, and empirical research, longitudinal research, showing a couple of really interesting things. First, that people who believe themselves to be porn addicted or addicted to pornography aren't actually using more porn than anyone else, but they have stronger religious values and stronger anti-sex values than other people. So in other words, they feel worse about the porn they're using, even though they're using less than most other people. Wow. Atheists are rarely self-diagnosing or um, as porn addicts or having problems with porn, porn addiction. Um, people in open relationships, people in the BDSM kink community, people in polyamorous relationships, um, they're not diagnosing themselves as being addicted to porn because they understand their sexuality. They're not afraid of it and they're able to self-manage it. Now, um, so it, it is unfortunately the people in our societies who have no training in sexuality, no education in sexuality, um, and are not taught to understand or manage their sexual desires, who would then jump on online where they can see all the pornography they want in five and a half seconds, um, and they're overwhelmed. Well, they're overwhelmed because they were thrown in the deep end of this pool and they were never taught to swim. We right. shouldn't be surprised when they drown. Now, the second thing that Josh Grubbs has shown really powerfully is that believing yourself to be addicted to pornography actually predicts greater emotional, physiological stress, um, anxiety, and depression problems over a year's time, regardless of how little pornography you want. Wow. So if you identify yourself as being a porn addict, then any desire you have to look at pornography or to engage in sexuality, frankly, then becomes something that you fight against and that you're ashamed of and you try to suppress. And that hurts people. Instead, we need to be teaching people how to understand their feelings and sexuality. You know, and I use the term sexual integrity a lot. Mm -hmm. I think we need to be teaching people how to understand what pornography means to them and what it doesn't mean. How to and teaching them how to understand, how to predict, you know, uh, their use of pornography. How to look at their use of pornography when they're not turned on. One of the things I ask people to do is to. Uh, Think about their use of pornography when they're not all aroused and getting ready to masturbate and to think about what pornography means in their life, because that's when you get to think about, well, what kind of person do I want to be? Am I OK with being a person who watches pornography or not? Um, if you're not, then we can help you start to understand why don't you like pornography? What do you think about it? What do you think about your sexuality in general? Then we get to understand. What are the real foundations of these problems? What are the things that are causing these conflicts and these, and these feelings of shame? And we get to help people with that. 
simply focusing on pornography, again, it takes us away from the person, and the person is the one that needs that. That makes lots of sense to me. Um, I, it, what strikes me, because I work with a really wide variety of folk, and what strikes me is that folks who are part of alternative communities, you know, BDSM and kink and, and um, um, non-heterosexual communities, tend to talk about their sexuality, think about their sexuality, try and figure out their sexuality far more than folks who identify as heterosexual. So like one of the things that I noticed, for example, is that heterosexual people are far more likely to get into bed before they've talked to each other about what they like, right? They don't talk, they act. Whereas um, with the exception of, of anonymous sex amongst homosexual community, which is a totally different issue, you know, if somebody, for example, is in the BDSM or King community, there's likely to have been multiple conversations prior to actually getting into bed. So people have a much better idea of themselves and of their partners. Do you think that's related? That the, the oh, idea of actually processing, I don't think we teach people how to process sexuality, how to actually think about sexuality. We don't give them a forum for that. Absolutely. I mean, I, and again, that's the, you know, that, that's the concept I, I, I call sexual integrity in terms of okay. helping people to integrate their sexuality into their idea of who they are, as opposed to trying to put it outside them and, mm-hmm. and hide from it and suppress it. You know, an interesting thing in response to what you were just saying is that gay and lesbian and bisexual people watch more pornography than heterosexuals. Yeah. Um, now, why is that? Well, some folks um, have argued that porn made them gay. That, you know, that Marcus Bachman is a psychologist here in the United States, um, religious man. There's also a group called the Triple X Church um, that ministers around pornography. They argue that watching too much pornography um, leads to people having a tolerance effect, like alcohol, where you need more and you need more stimulation, you need more taboo, and that leads to straight people becoming gay from watching too much pornography. Now, I've asked, you know, if I took a homosexual person and I had them watch a whole lot of porn, could I make that gay person straight? No, clearly not. Ultimately, why are gay people watching more porn? For a couple of reasons. One, many gay people are, are, you know, um, in the closet and keeping their sexuality secret, and pornography is one of the only ways where they can experience that orientation consistent sensation and stimulation. But secondly, because heterosexual sex is very common in mainstream media, but to find gay sex, you really have to go to porn. And many gay people tell me that it was from pornography that they first learned what gay sex looked like and what they could expect. And, but again, it, 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 the, the porn, the, the porn panic and, you know, the United Kingdom right now is in a huge porn panic is let's blame pornography for everything. And it becomes this big shiny object that everybody gets distracted by. It's this big sexy thing to blame everything on as opposed to dealing with the real issues and dealing with the real problems. Um, and the really concerning thing is when uh, most of the folks that are doing this blaming and shaming, most of the folks that are talking about pornography and porn addiction are folks that are um, highly religious and highly conservative. They have deeply conservative sexual values. And 
implicit in their restriction of access to pornography is they are telling you what kind of sex is healthy and okay. Right. And, and, and that in contrary to all the moves forward in, in psychiatry and psychology, this is all the big turn backwards. Yeah. This is what's okay. Yeah. In the UK, I mean, it was fascinating. Um, I think you were involved in some of this, the, you know, as the UK tried to restrict access to certain kinds of pornography, including women sitting on men's faces, and they had a face-sitting, you know, protest in yeah. front of Parliament. I thought yeah. that was fucking brilliant. Yeah, I know. Uh, we we don't take restriction of our rights um, easily at all here. Uh, people think uh, often talk about the United States as being, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of speech. But actually, um, in the UK, that's um, in some ways actually a stronger value. Um, and acted out more strongly. So yes, I remember that demonstration incredibly well. Yeah, I, I, and and that I think is one of the really important things. I mean, I um, on Twitter the other day, uh, a woman you know posted in response to, to something I had said about pornography, and she said, "Look, I'm a 35 year old woman who's been married for 20 years or 15 years, whatever it was." And um, I watch pornography, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with me. And she said, you know, more people need to stand up and say, wait a minute. Um, pornography is not the problem. Now, if you remember back in the, in the 1900s, um, you know, in America, they prohibited alcohol. And even though most people drank alcohol and had no problems, there was a small vocal minority, morally committed folks, who believed that that alcohol was the reason for crime, mental retardation, divorce, um, and most social problems. And so they, they, they banded together, and all the people who drank alcohol kept their mouth shut because these loud folks were saying, if you drink alcohol, you're stumped and immoral. Well, 10 years later, um, all those problems still existed, and so the United States government repealed that prohibition because, you know, social problems, divorce, mental retardation, these are complicated issues. You can't reduce them to a single factor like alcohol or pornography. But right now, again, there is this huge movement to blame pornography for everything, to blame pornography for teenagers having sex, which I didn't know teenagers needed a reason to have sex. Um, I think that teenagers probably had sex throughout history. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, they're actually having less sex these days than they were in the past. But they're watching pornography and people have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I think one of the big issues that's raised is, is how much teenagers learn their sexual patterns from pornography. So um, Peggy Ornstein did this research with girls um, I think it's 17 to 22 about, uh, about how they feel about sex and amongst other things, um, discovered that, um, quite a few of them were learning, patterning their moves, patterning their, their sexual responses on pornography, um, and trying to look like the women that they saw in pornography because they, they didn't really feel they had access to anything else. Yeah. That's what happens when you don't teach people how to swim and then you throw them in the deep end. I mean, we don't let kids learn to drive by watching Fast and the Furious. Um, And if we did, we wouldn't be surprised when they'll die in flaming car wrecks. But we are letting kids learn about sex from pornography because we're scared to talk to them about it. But the modern world of sexuality, you know, involves kink and open relationships and, and, and pornography 
casual sex, um, you know, things like Fifty Shades of Grey has led to this explosion of sexual diversity that we're not preparing people to manage. Um, and, and then we're surprised when they learn bad habits. Um, now, the, an important thing, though, I think there's this fabulous research from uh, the Netherlands, um, a researcher named Gert Hald, H-A-L-D, did this research and he looked at longitudinally over time, what is the long-term effect of pornography on adolescents? And he actually showed that pornography did have a negative effect on adolescents over time, predicting to a, to, to a degree their involvement in negative behaviors like drugs or relationship problems. However, here's the really important thing. It only, pornography only explained less than 1% of the variance in those kids. Wow. So we're treating pornography as this big super stimulus. We're treating it as this big issue, this big effect, but it's actually a tiny, tiny effect. What did predict those kids' behavior problems? Things like poverty, things like education, yep. access to healthcare, family environment. So I'd like to make a deal with society. I will totally deal with the issue and the impact of pornography as soon as all teenagers have access to good health care, healthy education, good, safe families, um, and, and mental health support. As soon as kids have all that stuff, then we can deal with the rest of the problems. But we're not going to get there because actually people don't want to deal with those things. They just want to have this sexy scapegoat pornography. Yeah, and I mean, as you know, sexuality being um, an area that is touchy for so many people, this is easier to focus on this and to externalize it. I mean, that's the one thing that that I find so frightening about all of this is how much of it's externalized, um, how little people actually think about what internal causes might be. Um, so, you you wrote about ethical porn for dicks. What are you recommending? What are you recommending when guys ask you, well, what's okay? Yeah. You know, I ended up writing that book because I see so many men come to me who've gotten in trouble for pornography or are nervous about their pornography use um, because society is telling them that pornography is going to change your brain. It doesn't. Pornography is, you know, going to be addictive. It's not. Pornography is going to turn you into a rapist. It's not. Um, but they're hearing all of this, but they watch pornography and they enjoy it. Um, so I ended up writing that book and I wrote it in this really accessible way. I wrote it as though I was sitting and having a beer with a guy instead of talking to them like a therapist or a psychologist mm. or a researcher. Um, I said, dude, let, let, let's just talk like dudes about, uh, about porn and, and, and what are your, <clears throat> what are your concerns? What are your questions? And I talked to lots of guys about this kind of stuff. And guys are, you know, guys are nervous. Guys, for instance, are nervous about the, the possibility that they might encounter child pornography or accidentally download child pornography and go to jail for the rest of their lives and be a sex offender for the rest of their lives. Um, and sadly, they, they have some legitimate risk in that, that you know, then uh, there are folks who have accidentally encountered or downloaded child pornography and then faced criminal charges for it. So one of the things about ethical pornography is that it's safe. Um, it, you are safer using it because you know it's consensual. Mm -hmm. You know that the people that were in it were, you know, agreed to be in it, that it was legal, they're of age, and you're not going to face going to jail for watching this stuff. Um, the other thing about ethical pornography production is that the people in it are treated well and they're paid well for it, you know. 
I drink coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. Um, and when I can, I like to drink fair trade coffee because, you know, then I know that those coffee beans were not made by, you know, farmed by people who were enslaved. Mm -hmm. I can be ethical and responsible in that. Ethical pornography allows me the same way to manage that guilt in my pornography. You know, a lot of people tell me that they worry um, or feel bad about watching pornography because they're worried that the women in the pornography were abused and exploited. Well, guess what? Ethical pornography is a way for you to know that the women and the performers in it are doing it because they want to do it, because they're excited to do it, because it's a passionate, stimulating thing for them. But if you watch pornography that is oftentimes free online, you don't know what you're getting. And sometimes you face a little risk for that. So ethical pornography, you know, it's a growing kind of field, sometimes called feminist pornography mm -hmm. or independent pornography. There are increasing makers of it. I talk about some of them in the back of the book. I give a list of resources of where and how you can find some of these people. Pink and White Productions is one of the groups that I talk about a lot, where they specifically make the pornography um, in an ethical, conscious, responsible way so that you don't have to feel guilty watching it. You don't have to worry um, about consequences from it. You don't have to worry about consequences for the people that I think that's really powerful, and it's a great way to resolve some of that shame and guilt. Now, I talk about pornography, ethical pornography, in a second way, though, which is in our consumption of it. I think we can be ethical and responsible in our use of pornography as well. And so what I encourage folks to do, again, I already said one of them, is to, to think about your use of pornography when you're not turned on. But I, I, I invite people to think about what what kind of pornography do you watch? And what does it mean that you watch that? There are lots of um, guys, straight guys, who watch transgender porn. And yep. they're worried, or their wives or girlfriends are worried, when they find that porn, they're worried that they're actually gay because they like to watch women with dicks. Um, and in fact, it is straight guys who watch that. Gay men don't. Gay mm -hmm. men are not turned on by it. They like penises attached to male bodies. Um, and, and, and there's some sophisticated psychological reasons, probably, why guys like that kind of pornography. But if you understand that about yourself, and again, that's the whole point of my book, you know, you, where we started just now was helping people to understand themselves, mm. and integrity. That's what this book tries to do, inviting people to understand their sexuality and then be able to talk to their girlfriend or wife about it, to be able to say, hey, honey, I like pornography. And sometimes I like pornography um, with, with women that look like you. And sometimes I like pornography with women who look different. Um, and me liking that doesn't take anything away from you. Um, can we negotiate that in our relationship? That's a really hard conversation for people who haven't been taught how to talk about sex or understand their own sexuality. Well, I think it... You know, it's become more prevalent because now everything is video. Now everything is visual. Um, you know, in the old days, the conversation was about the, the magazines hidden under the bed and things like that. And and kind of women were taught not to, to be too concerned about that. And the, the actual visual pornography was much more hidden. But now it's so accessible. But I imagine it just makes it um, a far more difficult conversation to have that, you know, a moving image is far more challenging than a picture in a magazine. Yeah. And, you know, the, the old story, um, you know, that they tell women, uh, you know, don't give away the milk for free eggs. Nobody will buy the cow. 
what that is saying is don't be a slut. Don't yeah. give away sex for free because then you won't get married. Well, what that does is it treats sex as an economic commodity. Mm -hmm. And it teaches women that in many cases, their only value is as a sexual object and that their desire is to get married. Well, milk, uh, pornography puts a high-speed milk faucet in the bedroom. And it changes this economic value of sex because now guys can masturbate to pornography and have a reasonably um, satisfying uh, alternative to, you know, engaging in sex or pursuit of engaging in sex. Um, that changes the dynamics and it equalizes, frankly, the playing field for women and men um, about what sex is within the relationship. Um, and, and I think the more we start talking about sex in that collaborative kind of negotiated way, as opposed to you have something that I want and I must pay for in some way, shape or form, boy, that leads to unhealthy kind of uh, sexual dialogue and understanding. And I'm, I'm not saying in, in that that sex workers are not having healthy sex. I think, in fact, sex workers are oftentimes helping many people to have, have healthy sex and understand and mm. accept their sexuality very better. Um, but instead, I'm inviting people to think about what sex means to them um, and how they want it to be a part of their relationship. So you're, you're actually inviting them to look at the power dynamics quite clearly and quite explicitly, um, which often people don't do. And when you start talking about power dynamics and power exchange, people think you're going to talk about BDSM. But in fact, they're in all relationships. So you're asking them to really make that explicit and clear and, and negotiate and collaborate instead of setting up a sort of more adversarial type of yeah. relationship. Yeah, oh, very much. And, you know, so much of the power around pornography comes from fear. And, you know, like, it, if I said to you that, you know, um, you're my wife and I tell you, you know, I don't, I don't want you to masturbate in the, in the uh, bathtub unless you're thinking about me. If you ever fantasize about anybody other than me, your husband, I've got a problem with that. You shouldn't do that. Across the country, across the world, you know, couples would say, wait a minute. No, that's not okay. Husband can't control the wife's fantasy in that way. But wives are exerting power over male sexual fantasy, which is typically pornography. Pornography is fantasy made external. And mm -hmm. Yeah. And women unfortunately are, are being told to be afraid of pornography and then they're using that fear to exert power and control over their husband's sexuality um you know when i got married i i didn't know and i, and I don't think it was part of my wedding vows that my wife had a you know remote control over my ability to experience sexual pleasure privately and i didn't assume that kind of control over her and one of the things that I help couples talk about and negotiate a lot about is, you know, this, this idea of sexual privacy that, you know, we, while we love each other and we have a bonded, committed relationship, that doesn't mean I'm still not an individual with individual needs and individual thoughts, fantasies, and desires. And the best relationship is one that involves an overlap and a, and a negotiated collaboration not a one-to-one -one of enmeshment where my sexual you know needs and desires belong to you 
but I think that that I think that the model that is taught is that that is what a marriage and a relationship is supposed to look like, that everything should be enmeshed. And and I'm always amused by how many secrets people keep in terms of masturbation. You know, you start talking to married couples, you separate them and talk to them individually. I always see couples individually first to get a sense of their own history. And, um, you know, you, you ask about masturbation and they'll both admit masturbating. They'll talk about their masturbatory material. Put them back together. Nope, nope. Does your partner masturbate? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, and it's, it's, it's collusion. Um, yeah. Because somehow to be in a good relationship, I'm supposed to be, you're entirely in me and I'm entirely in you and, and, and everything is completely enmeshed, which of course is unhealthy. But that's the model. Isn't it funny how it all goes back to shame and education about sex and relationships? Um, and boy, I wish we could address those issues because those are the things that are really leading people's struggle. You know, I, um, uh, you know, a, a couple came to me, a guy, you know, who, where the wife said he was watching too much pornography and he was worried he was addicted to pornography. And he was, he was watching pornography instead of having sex with his wife. And a lot of, a lot of couples complain about now, consistently, what I find in every one of those cases is the couple stopped having sex as much, and the husband still had a libido and still had sexual needs and started going to masturbation and pornography. Um, it's easy to blame pornography there, but in fact, pornography was the effect, not the cause. This one man, though, he came to me and, and, and he was... Uh, Watching pornography instead of having sex with his wife, and they were, you know, they were concerned. Is this a problem with pornography? Well, as we looked at it, and as I talked to him, it turned out it was a lot of things. The the couple was on a different um, work schedule. He worked during the day. She worked graveyard shift. Their their circadian rhythms were different. When she was ready to have sex and turned on, he was exhausted and bed asleep because of their different cycles. So we had to start scheduling sex, and we had to start talking about that. Um, but ultimately, you know, I invited them to think about and to talk about what would be too much, what would be enough. And, you know, it, I invited them to think about what if he masturbated to pornography only after they had had sex two or three times um, that week. And they negotiated that and came back and said, hey, that works. Now she wasn't threatened about, mm-hmm. by pornography because she still felt her needs were being met. They, she had identified what her needs were, and he had talked about what his needs were. That's the answer. Now, and there is research that shows that, you know, the long-term effects of pornography on couples. And it's really, really interesting because it's not what people think. It's not, it's not, it's not intuitive. Um, it kind of is, maybe to you and me, but um, that couples where the couple watches pornography together have healthier sexual relationships. Couples where the husband and wife both watch pornography individually, um, but they know about it, and they both, they have healthier sexual relationships. Couples where the wife watches pornography, the couples have healthier relationships. It is only the case when co- where couples watch pornography, the husband watches pornography in secret, and the wife doesn't watch pornography and doesn't like pornography. That's a couple that has problems. And what does that problem mean? Again, it's not about the pornography. The pornography is just a symptom of the different sexual values, the different levels of sexual integrity and negotiation and communication within this relationship. 
but these couples get divorced and they blame pornography. Well, no, this was a sexually mismatched relationship all along. Pornography was just a thermometer that showed it. And that's interesting to me because that's another thing that doesn't get talked about is that, yeah, it is possible to be in a mismatched relationship and that there isn't any blame around that. And that part of the reason we end up in mismatched relationships is because we don't actually explore this. People think that um, sex, they can predict their sex life based on those that first six months in the relationship, which actually has nothing to do with anything because people yeah. do all sorts of things they might not ordinarily do because they're so into their partner. And they don't talk. So since they never talk, they never figure out where they actually are. And so it's some, somewhat taboo to actually talk about the fact that actually maybe we're mismatched. And, and now if we know we're mismatched, is there a solution to that? Because there are a whole host of solutions. I mean, I've worked with couples who have opened their relationships up because they were mismatched, other couples who have used pornography, and then other couples who have chosen to divorce, but have done it in a in a an ethical way, in a, in a kind and caring way, without blame and without a lot of hatred, instead of what often happens, which is this har horrible, vituperative separation, and you know, it's pornography's fault or it's you know. He's a sex maniac or she's a sex maniac. And these days we say addict. We don't say maniac. Yep. Yeah. I, again, it, it's that it's that ability to negotiate, to communicate. I mean, I, you know, I look at pornography always as a symptom. And <clears throat> now the other thing that is often a symptom of, though, um, besides relationship problems, is that in men, Men use pornography um, and sex um, as a way to cope with negative emotions mm -hmm. like stress and depression. And for a long time, there was research that showed that there are men who are using high levels of pornography and have high levels of anxiety and depression. And so for a long time, therapists were blaming the pornography for causing those negative feelings. The longitudinal research that looked at those men over time actually showed it was the reverse, that the negative feelings came first, and then the men started watching pornography and masturbating more as a way to kind of cope with it. You know, the number one life event that predicts an increase in a man's use of pornography is a divorce, because you take a guy who's in a relationship, and he gets to have sex, and he's connected, and he, and he, and he has emotional support, and then all of a sudden he's alone and horny and sad, um, and, and then he watches pornography. Um, so what I do with those men is I help them develop alternative coping strategies. It's fine for you to use pornography or masturbation as a way to make those feelings um, uh, go away or for a little bit. But there are times like when you're at work or at church um, or at your in-law's house having Thanksgiving dinner that when you're stressed out, looking at porn isn't a great way to deal with it. So you need to come up with some better strategies. And I help men develop alternative strategies. Now, women oftentimes don't need that work. Women, and I, I'm envious, frankly, uh, of you, that women get support across their life to develop other ways to express, manage, and be aware of their negative feelings. Guys don't. Yeah. Guys are told to it up. If a guy has negative feelings, he's he, that makes him weak. And so... The, Guys are lazy, and we find one thing that works, and masturbation to pornography is a great, very effective strategy. I suspect that strategy starts starts from from um, toddlership. I mean, you know, kids, when they discover themselves, will begin to masturbate for comfort. 
That's what little yeah. kids do. That always freaks people out when, when, when I say that in public. It's like, oh, children masturbate. Yes, they do. They discover themselves very early on. And that's a comfort mechanism. And, and boys, more girls as much as boys initially, but then boys continue that as a comfort mechanism more so. So you just exactly. add the pornography and then they're adults. Well, I, I, yeah, I hadn't realized that. That's really interesting. Yeah, porn, porn use in men oftentimes is a comfort mechanism. You know, and I, and I see lots of guys who get in trouble for looking at porn at work, <clears throat> and they're guys who are bored or stressed, and they don't have other ways to manage those feelings. Um, and there's, you know, again, there's also often other issues involved. One guy I worked with, he had gotten, you know, in, in trouble at work, ultimately lost his job. <clears throat> he was a high, you know, a high, highly educated engineer, but he was working in a really boring state job, and he ended up looking at pornography. <clears throat> And got caught and lost his job um, because he wasn't he, he hadn't developed any skills to manage his boredom or his stress or really thought about what it was doing to him to be in this sort of dead end job. But the interesting thing with this guy was, again, I asked him the question I asked all these folks, what kind of pornography are you watching? Because we treat pornography as though it's all the same. It's really not. There's all kinds of pornography out there. And the different kinds of pornography mean different things or indicate different things. So this guy was watching Europhilia porn, water sports porn, where you know performers uh, urinate, um, and it's a fetishistic kind of interest and behavior. And so I said to him, I said, "Well, <clears throat> you've been married for 15 years. Does your wife know you're into that?" He goes, "No," because he had never talked to her about that. He had never talked to anybody about this. He had a deep, deep, deep-seated shame and fear about what that interest meant for him. And so I said, "Well, you know." You got in trouble for this. You lost your job over it. Maybe it's time to talk to your wife about that. So we talked about how he would do that. We practiced it. He went home. He talked to his wife, and he came back the next week, and he said, dude, she's into it. Now, it wasn't that she was shared his fetishistic interest, but she was good giving in game in Dan Savage's terms. She was willing to negotiate, making that a component of their sexuality. And now... He didn't have to watch porn in secret to fulfill that secret sexual interest he had because now he could go home and have sex with his wife in the bathtub while she peed and it was okay. So the pornography there was, again, it was an indicator of this unresolved issue that he needed help with and that our society and our sex education and our relationship skills had not set him up to deal with. That's brilliant. I mean, I'm sure there are loads of cases like that. Um, I've certainly run across over the years so many people who are unwilling to talk about that one fetish that they have that's been integral to their fantasy life since they were small, but they're desperately terrified if they say anything to their partner, that's going to be the end of the relationship. Yeah, um, because they're afraid that's something wrong with them, even though yep. you know, really remarkable recent research from Quebec shows that 50% of the population in general, maybe maybe people in Quebec are really kinky and freaky, but... <laughs> If we assume that the, the Canadian Quebecois are relatively representative of human beings, 50% of people out there have one fetishistic interest or another, and 30% of them have made that sexual interest um, a part of their sex life and experienced it at least once. So we used to think that these sexual fantasies and interests were rare and unhealthy, and it turns out they're not, because in that same research, interest in things like masochism actually predicted life satisfaction 
Yep. Um, people who had those fantasies or had negotiated them in their relationships have healthier relationships and healthier lives, have better understandings of themselves. You know, sexuality is an integral part of life and human well-being. But when we externalize it, when we put it outside ourselves, we hurt people. Um, this, this porn panic crisis, I think ultimately it might be a good thing because it's forcing us, <clears throat> sorry, my voice, it's forcing us to realize that we've been externalizing sexuality and that's hurting. And now we need to help people learn how to bring it back in into themselves, into their ideas of who they are, who they want to be, and move forward in life with that understanding. I agree completely. Where can people find you? So I'm on I'm on Twitter a lot um, at Dr. David Lay. Uh, the last name is L E Y though, so it's at D R D A V I D L E Y with the last name Lay. I have two options. I could be a sex doctor, right? Last name Lay. Or I could be a politician involved in a sex scandal. I really <laughs> looked hard at that one. I thought about going into politics. Um, <clears throat> but it's pretty clear Anthony Weiner holds the title for the most aptly named politician involved. Indeed. In sex he continues to defend the title. And I knew I couldn't compete. So I went with sex doctor. <laughs> at Dr. David Lay on Twitter. Um, uh, my books are on Amazon and I have three books, um, one about cuckolding and the hot wife relationship skills or uh, lifestyle, another about the myth of sex addiction. And then my third book about pornography is responsible pornography use for men. Uh, I'm going to put the links up to those on the website when the, um, podcast comes out as well as the Twitter, la Twitter handle. So everybody will be able to find it. I can't thank you enough for being here. I will probably ask you to come back again. I want to do something on, um, I have an idea to do something on cuckolding, so I hadn't realized you'd written on that. So yeah, it's you know it's interesting. It's it's the hot topic. I mean, it's you know I wrote that book in two thousand nine. Um, it's the only scholarly publication about cuckolding <clears throat> that's been done. I'm actually in the process right now of writing a uh, academic piece about gay cuckolding, um, which has become more popular since gay marriage came about, which is fascinating. You know, when we legalized gay marriage, we turned it into a taboo that then it became kinky and exciting to violate. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's getting a lot more increasing attention these days. I did a, a radio show in Ireland just a couple of weeks ago um, because they were wanting to talk about cuckolding. Cool. So thank you again. Um, thanks to my listeners for joining me this week for the A to Z of Sex. Write in with your questions to Dr. Lori Beth at a to z of sex.com. That's a t o z or z o f s e x.com and visit both websites www.a to z of sex.com and www.the-intimacy-coach.com to learn about alternative sexual choices, types of sexual relationships, and to learn to sizzle and create that ideal lasting intimate relationship. For a free 30-minute session with me, head over to www.a-to-zofsex.com and click on the button that says book now. Please join me next week when the letter will be R. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the A to Z of sex. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review here on iTunes and make sure you head over to www.a-to-zofsex.com 
That's A-T-O-Z-O-F-S-E-X. To subscribe to my free newsletter to help you keep your sex life sizzling. Stay tuned for upcoming weekly episodes as we work our way through the sexual alphabet to discover the wide world of sex, sexuality, desire, and intimacy. Knowledge gives you the power to create relationships that bring you satisfaction and joy. Hope to see you next week.